hymn books. Go to hymn number five. We're not going to sing, but I want you to read some words with me. Hymn number five, and then we're taking our Bibles. We're headed to Mark chapter seven and kind of make a comparison. Hymn number five is a very, very familiar hymn that most of you could probably just, if we started singing it, you could sing it and know the words. It's that song that's oh for a thousand tongues. I want you to follow a theme. As you look at just uh, the first four stanzas, there is definitely an emphasis by the writer to get the idea that when it comes to the gospel, there is something about the gospel that impacts the presentation of the gospel in in a way of hearing things. Watch what I mean by this. Oh, for a what? Thousand tongues. Okay, we're to sing. We're talking against the hearing. My great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumph of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to... Okay, we're going to proclaim to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of your name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows seek. Tis music where? Sinner's ears. Tis life, health, peace. And then verse 4. It's, it's the song of, you know, idea of hearing. Hear him, ye deaf, his praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ, ye blind, behold, your Savior come. I wonder if that passage or this story, this song, wasn't written after the writer read Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, jump down into the story and let's read a few verses, then put it in its context. In Mark chapter 7, jump down to verse 31. And again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he, Jesus, came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. And they bring unto him the one who was deaf, who had an impediment in his speech. And they besought him to put his hand upon him. And he took him, Jesus took the, the deaf man aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ears, he spit, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said unto him, Ephtatha, and it, which is, be opened. And straightway his ears were opened, and the string of his tongue was loosed, and he spake plain. And Jesus charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so much the more a great deal they published it, and were beyond measure astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. It is an interesting story in the context of that we read in Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 is in the latter weeks and months of Jesus' ministry. As this story is unfolding and as Jesus is ministering, he goes into this region that we mentioned earlier in the chapter when we looked at last week. He goes outside the Jewish nation. He's in the area of Tyre and Sidon. After he ministered there, he's traveling around the Sea of Galilee and ended up in Decapolis in this region. And uh, only one who records this specific account is Mark. However, Matthew, who has the parallel account in a broad sense, in Matthew 15 says, Jesus healed and he lists the deaf and the uh, mute <clears throat> and in with a whole lot of others that Jesus healed. So there's obviously a lot of people that he healed at this place at this time, but Mark pulls out this one story, and there's a reason for that. If we go back to Mark chapter 1, we remember that as he started writing this epistle, he said, there's a reason why I'm writing what I'm writing. He said in Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark has already opened to us, given us an idea that everything he writes in this gospel account that we call Mark chapter 1 through chapter 16, everything has to do with the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel presentation of Jesus 
Jesus Christ. How does this story fit into that gospel presentation? How is it that this one singular story that only Mark records, that he picks out of all the other healings that were done in Decapolis, why is it Mark picks this one? There's several different factors that relate to the gospel in this single story. Let's, let's point those out. The gospel, by doing what he did with this man, he makes it clear that the gospel is for anyone and everyone. Jesus is with his disciples. He's taking them in their last few weeks before he's going to die, bury, and resurrect. He's giving them their final training. So what he does in this trip is giving them information that they will need for the future. He is also giving them instruction. He is assisting them. But he's making it very clear to them through this trip that he is interested in ministering to anyone and everyone. Now, prior to this point, Jesus has stated, Jesus has told his disciples, go not to the house of the Samaritans. Do not go to the land of the Gentiles, but only go to what group of people? to the Jews. Okay, so up to this point in his ministry, he has made it clear he is ministering to the Jews. He has made that clear earlier in the same account, in this same chapter, when he's talking to the Syrophoenician woman and that one Gentile woman who said, please let me experience some of your healing. He said to her in verse 27, let the children first be filled for it is not proper or meat to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. His inference is this, that the children of Israel get the gospel first. And that we ought not to take the gospel message and give it to the Gentiles first. And that's the highlighted word here, is that it first goes to the Jews, which is very consistent the way Jesus preached. Jesus, up to this point, has not left Jewish territory. But in Mark chapter 7, he leaves the region because of the opposition, because he's training his men, he needs some private time, and he goes to the region earlier in the chapter to Tyre and Sidon. I mentioned it last week. Tyre and Sidon is the northern part of what we call modern-day Lebanon. When he went there, he's going to a land that to the Jews at that time, it was one of the most wicked and pagan of countries around them. Tyre Sidon was the home of Jezebel, who we read about in the Old Testament. Just a few hundred years before this account, both Ezekiel and Zechariah preached messages of condemnation in particular towards Tyre and Sidon. So there is no love loss between the Jews, but Jesus goes there, taking with him his twelve and indicating to them very clearly that the gospel is going to be given, not just to the Jews, but it's opening up to the Gentiles. And so he's giving a premiere of it, just a, a little bit of a glimpse of what they are to be doing in the future. And he ministers to the Syrophoenician. And then he comes down, as we read in verse 31, he comes down on the east side of the Sea of Galilee and goes into the 10th city area called Decapolis, which is once again predominantly Gentile territory. And as he's there preaching, this, blood, this deaf mute is brought to him, and that individual wants, his friends want Jesus to do something, and he ministers. So it's very clear, Jesus is by example making it, making it a statement to his disciples that the gospel is for anyone and everyone. It's not just for the Jews, but that was his primary first group, but it's also for the Gentiles, as we've said. And let me add one other group there, not just the Jews and the Gentiles, but throw another group in. A group that is often overlooked, and that is the rejected, the disabled, the impaired, the handicapped. 
Here's an individual that even in their culture at that time, they would have been put aside. They would have been neglected. They would have been, well, we saw even when, when it was presented just moments ago, that there's a lot of individuals with desperate needs that oftentimes are overlooked. They can't make the normal contributions to society because they're blind or because they have some handicap. This man had a dual handicap. He was deaf and he was a mute. He wasn't able to speak in this past. Oh, by the way, just to throw it out there so you, it's clear, that when it says in verse 32, and they bring unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment, the word that is used for impediment in the original language is only found here in one other place in the Bible, Isaiah 35. And it is a term that is a very strong idea that there is a, a, a severe uh, 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 um, handicap, uh, impairment, whatever word you want to put in there, but something that is extremely intense and something that is debilitating to a great degree. And so this man is coming, and even by the wording, we have it very clearly presented that this fellow is really in a desperate situation. So desperate, he can't come to Jesus on his own. His friends have to bring him, as we've already read in the story. When Jesus is dealing with him, it's a really an, an interesting facet that I, I just can't ignore. I need to at least talk about it. Is There's so much written about how come Jesus did what he did in this text. Why did Jesus, dealing with this handicapped individual, why did he stick his finger in his ear? I, I mean, if somebody was ministering to you, if, if I was preaching to you and I walked up and I stuck my finger in your ear, you'd probably smack me, and rightfully so. Or if I spit on my finger and then touched your tongue with my spittle, you, you wouldn't even let me get that far. Okay, you'd smack me down. Jesus is doing that. And there's a lot of conversation about why is he ministering to the man that way. There are some who would say this. And back in this region, now we're not in a Jewish territory, we're in a, in a para-Jewish territory where there was a lot of different magical incantations. It was commonly said amongst those people living in that region, Decapolis, they had a lot of soothsayers, they had a lot of magicians. We have records that when they wanted to do healings, when they wanted to do some type of, of help to somebody who had a handicap or whatever, they had incantations, they would literally take the innards of the birds or the lizards and they would say things over them, or they would ask the people to drink these things, and they were a part of the healing. So there are some who suggest that Jesus does, he uses his own spittle to just show that here he is, he's presenting to them, to this deaf man, something that that man would understand, he would relate to, that Jesus is doing some type of, some type of healing in his life by, by relating it to something that this man may have seen before that these, these individuals who did the incantations might take and, and make some concoction. Then there's others who say, no, just the opposite. Jesus, being Jewish, spit was considered something that makes somebody unclean. So if I spat in your food or we, you know, spit was exchanged, as well as other body foods, there's an uncleanness that comes. But what this story is all about is Jesus is portraying how his spit, it purifies, it doesn't pollute. And so you have these stories that are going, I don't think either one of those kind of fit the story, that they reach the motif of it. I think what was explained just a couple, three months ago, two months ago, when we had the brother who was deaf here, and he pointed out in this text... I think he hit it on the head, that the man was an individual that communication was extremely limited. Jesus is using sign language that this man could understand when Jesus is 
talking about or speaking to this man in sign language. I'm going to deal with your hearing. I'm going to deal with your tongue. And Jesus makes it very clear in the sign language by sighing and looking up that this isn't, that this isn't something like my spit that's doing it, even though that might be the popular theory. Rather, this is the work of God. And in fact, it, there is no healing until Jesus does what? Not stick his finger in his ear, not touch his tongue, but when is the man healed? When Jesus speaks to the individual, that it's the power of Jesus speaking. But prior to that point, the man has no way of knowing what Jesus is doing. And so Jesus is communicating at the level where this man is understanding. And the point being is Jesus is ministering. And laying out before his disciples, we need to be ministering to all types of people. And sharing the truth of what God can do in restoring and remo- and and re- reverting the should uh, reverting is not the right word, but reversing reversing what the cause of the, the effects of sin have caused. How Jesus can restore an individual. And so here we have one lesson about the gospel that stands out. That's an important lesson that the gospel is for anyone and everyone. Can take a step further. In this whole account. Let's add this second thought. That in this story we're going to be reading this fact. That the gospel must include the whole. The whole of the redemption account. The whole okay, of the redemption account. Now this is very, very important. Mark is writing to what group of people? It's not the Jews. He, he's not targeting Jews. He even has to explain the terms that, that, that he, when Jesus speaks. He says, okay, Jesus said this term, and it means be opened. Early in the chapter, he even wrote to those people and said, here's how the Jews did their traditional things. It's not a Jewish society that he's writing to, but he's writing to a Gentile society who needed to hear that Jesus is open to everyone, and he's writing in particular to the Roman people. And so when Jesus is writing this, he's uh, very concerned that those individuals who don't have a background in the law and all of that understanding, that they hear the whole gospel. It happened even during this ministry. During the time that Jesus is preaching, during the time that Jesus is ministering in Syrophoenicia, and then now here along Decapolis, he heals the man. What's the next thing that he tells these, the people who are excited about the healing? What does he tell them to do? Don't tell anybody. Why? Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus says, don't say anything, which to you and me seems so contradictory to the truth because what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to tell everyone, okay, all creatures. So why is it that Jesus gave the command, don't tell anyone? Okay, I think there are several possibilities, okay? And there are, these, are, these are realistic possibilities at this time. There are practical reasons. The practical reason is revealed in a couple different accounts. In Mark chapter 1, for instance, in verse 45, when he heals the leper, okay, and the leper does not listen to Jesus, but goes and tells everybody, remember what happened? So many people come out into the area where Jesus is that Jesus could no more enter into the city. He couldn't go in the city. So practically, if they share things, could there be so many people coming that it would hinder the ministry of Jesus Christ? That is a reality. That is a fact. You and I might say, well, wait a minute, the more people know he couldn't get into into the cities where he could have a more lasting, long-lasting impact. There is also 
the religious aspect, okay? Well, let me stay with the practical for another reason. If a lot of people are propagating and telling about what Jesus is doing all the time, what does that do in relationship to the authorities? Does that allow Jesus to minister freely, or does it bring a lot of investigation, a lot of suspicion? It happened with the Jewish people, right? As he ministered, what do they immediately send up, send after Jesus? The Jews would send people from the Sanhedrin who would investigate, who would challenge Jesus, who ended up arguing with him and creating controversy time and time and time again. So in a practical sense, is he going to be in trouble with the authorities more and more as there is a popular movement growing? The answer is... Yes. Now, he's not in trouble with the Jews in this area of Decapolis. They're not the authority. But who is the practical authority that could put a stop to him quickly? The Romans. The Romans. This is their territory. This is their, their area. So let's just kind of keep it down. We can minister without making too much hubbub. That's a practical reason. There's a religious reason. He told at one time, he told the leper when he healed him, don't tell anybody, but rather go and show yourself... Do you remember the rest of the account? To the priests, why? Because, if them, because according to the law, if somebody was healed by leprosy, it wasn't a verifiable, wasn't an accepted miracle until they could verify. Was he really sick? Was there a healing? And so rather than propagate it, Jesus tells the man to go show yourself to the priests because then it would have been substantiating the ministry of Jesus Christ. It would have been legitimatized by the investigation that was appropriate and proper, done in private the way it was supposed to be, and then the accusations couldn't be launched against Jesus that he was doing this in the name of Beelzebub. It would have been attributed to God. But the man instead goes and tells others, and all of a sudden things get out of control. There is another religious reason. Did Jesus ever tell any other type of preachers, be quiet, don't tell anything more about me? The answer is yes, and who am I referring to? What creatures? The demons. He didn't want them to testify. He didn't want them to talk about it because they're a bad witness for the cause of Christ. Because they would say that they would probably uh, get people to think he is associated with them, which they end up accusing him. There is, as one author put it down, he says, you have to remember there is also this characteristic of the servant. The mindset of Jesus from Isaiah 53 that he came as a servant, he was presenting and wanting to glorify who during his ministry? The Father. It was about glorifying the Father. And so there's an aspect of humility with Jesus that's even highlighted in this text. That earlier in this chapter, it says Jesus went into a home to be hidden. So there's an aspect that Jesus wasn't walking around and trying to say, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, and let me be propagated. Really, he isn't going to portray himself as the one until later on, where he's saying, okay, now let's make sure we magnify, which leads me to that thought that I, that I used in your, in your um, outline heading. At this point... What gospel message do these people that brought the blind, uh, the deaf, mute, what gospel message do they have? Do they have the whole account? Do they know about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? No. And if they're just going out and giving what limited knowledge they have, how are they presenting Jesus? 
as a humanitarian, as a healer, or an educator, or something like that, until they get the complete gospel message. Which is very interesting. When Jesus was dealing with the Jews, he usually tied the miracle with a message such as we'll talk about that next week and next time we get together because of the feeding of the thousands. He puts that John 6 message about the manna from heaven. There is no opportunity here to stick the message with it. Let's just be quiet because otherwise people get more excited with the gift rather than the giver. They will get more excited about the miracle than the message. So it makes perfect sense that he's saying you haven't seen the complete story yet. You don't know the ending. Wait until you hear everything and you get the whole complete picture then go out and try presenting it then give the message because you don't have the completed message yet give the whole gospel and by the way it's true in our day is missions about presenting Jesus as a good guy as a humanitarian as a benefactor Jesus was those things but he was so much more he's the savior the Redeemer. That's the essence of the gospel. So it makes sense in my mind that he's telling these people, be quiet. Don't go out and say a message until you have the message to say. And so it, there's no contradiction. It's just that Jesus at this moment is saying to them that, listen, when you're going to go out and give the gospel, make sure that the gospel includes the entire redemptive story. Let's go to number three. The gospel, another fact about it. The gospel focuses upon who Christ really is. This is the theme of the gospel, is presenting Jesus. Now, as you look at the story just quickly, what do you pre, what, how is Jesus presented in the story? Stern? Caring. Too busy? Compassionate. Give me, give me some thoughts here. He's, he's portrayed, how, how do you get compassionate out of this story? He takes the man aside, by the way. He takes him in private, away from the crowds. What else, Bob? Okay. And he's, he's willing to do something that culturally, by Jewish thing, you're touching another man's tongue. Remember, we said there was an uncleanness in that respect. He's showing great compassion to this man. Compassion to the fact that others, others may not want to deal with handicapped folk. But Jesus does. What else do you see portrayed about Jesus? Any other? If you were reading this, you're a Roman individual. You're sitting in the land, in the capital city of Rome. You get this letter. How is this going to present Jesus to you? What else would be characteristic, or uh, characteristic would stand out? Yes, ma'am. Okay, okay. His idea of dealing with the individual once again, that personal, that he is caring. And again, they're living in a city, and most of the people. Think about the majority of people who lived in Rome. What was their life status? Ancient Rome. I know, I'm, I'm asking you to, to come up with History Channel facts. Okay. What do you know about the majority of people in that, in that country? They were slaves. Who paid attention to them? Right? <clears throat> but here you get the presentation. Jesus is personally caring in an individual way. What else stands out? Roman peoples, typically, uh, there's that phrase, blank makes right. Okay, might. Roman thinking is power, strength. How is Jesus portrayed in this passage? Weak, powerful. It's 50-50, folk. Which one? He's got the power to do what? To heal somebody of some phenomenally 
difficult situation. You can't fake somebody going from deaf to hearing. You can't fake somebody who can't speak at all to all of a sudden, what does the passage say the man speaks? How does he end up speaking? Plain. The word literally is totally understandable. Now, that's, and again, I, I am so thankful that we had that brother in from IPM that presented it, because I had never thought about this before. If the man was born deaf, how does he know how to speak? He's never learned how to make the th sound. All of a sudden, when Jesus heals this man so he can hear, not only can he hear, but he can speak with, what's the passage say? With clarity, okay? And he's communicating, and he knows how to... How long has it taken you to teach your kids how to say words? And some people in this area still can't say their W's right, okay? And this fella is able to understand language that he's never heard before and to speak it. There's, there's more of a miracle here than just, okay, open up the ears. There's opening up understanding and ability Okay, you're reading this for the first time. Is that impressive? That this man is that powerful? Okay, and now remember, your readers who are hearing this are hearing about this man who is extremely powerful. The story right before, he heals this, this woman who's, uh, whose daughter was extremely sick. Now, there's a response that is interesting that comes down. Where it goes down in the end, the last two verses. Okay, he charged them they should tell no one, and they're so excited. They're so excited. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to excuse and saying that their disobedience to Christ was proper and okay. okay. I'm not saying that at all. But do you understand why they had a tough time keeping their mouth shut? Yes, no? Okay. That they're enthused, they're excited. And then what he does is he makes allusion in this text, whether this was them saying it, the disciples saying it, but he says he charged them. But the more he charged them, so much more they were publishing it around and were beyond measure. They were astonished. They were excited. They were, he hath done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. There's a passage in the Old Testament that this sounds like. Go there to, with me. You need to see two things out of this passage. Isaiah 35. Because I, I can't help but think that the author is combining these two texts, this Old Testament with the New Testament text. Isaiah 35. Hold your finger here and mark. In Isaiah 35, he is going to, in this passage, he's going to make the comments about that very thing that happens. Isaiah 35 is a predictive passage, a prophetic passage about Messiah. When Messiah comes, when the anointed one comes, when the Redeemer comes. And we read these types of things, what Messiah will do. In Isaiah 35, verse 3, Strengthening you that are weak hands, confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even come with recompense. He will come, he will save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. What else is going to happen? The ears of the deaf shall be Okay, then shall the lame leap for, uh, as a heart or a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall... Okay, now catch something here. I said there was a word that is used in Mark chapter 7 describing the impediment. Okay, the, the idea that they cannot speak. The only other time it shows up in biblical literature is in Isaiah 35 talking about the people who are unable to speak. 
It's the only two times it shows up. Now, again, this is in the Septuagint, which is quoted a lot in the New Testament. But it's the only time the word is used, making these two passages somewhat parallel or equated as they're written. There is another thing that happens here. Look at Isaiah 35, verse 2. What area is going to greatly rejoice? What area is going to get excited about the work that is being done? Okay, It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. And the glory of... Lebanon shall be given into it, and the excellency of Carmel and Sharon. This is the only time Lebanon's referred to, and this is a non-Jewish territory. Where is Jesus ministering in Mark chapter 7? He's, he's ministering in the region of ancient Lebanon. And so in this predictive passage, talking about and paralleling some of the same things that happen in Mark chapter 7, it's very clear that with Mark presenting this for any Jewish reader, who is he telling them? Jesus is. He's God. He's the predicted one. He's the Messiah. And they need to clearly understand who he is and not deny him. So when we talk about the gospel, the gospel has to be given to anyone and everyone. The gospel has to include the whole story. The gospel has to focus on Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. I am all in favor of the idea that we invite people to our assembly. Because I think you're the, you're the greatest assembly you know, in the world, to me. That's my personal feelings. However, do people need to hear about Faith Baptist Church? Is that the priority? No. Who do they need to hear about? They need to hear about Jesus Christ. He's the focal point of the gospel. He's the one that people need to see. It's not going to be us that changes anybody. It's going to be Jesus Christ, the gospel the gospel. Let me make the other thought here. And reminding again, these are for the disciples who are watching Jesus. They're seeing his power. They're seeing what he can do and how he can fulfill even the passages of the Old Testament that are subtly predicting. But for us, we understand with fuller gospel. Let's make a fourth statement. The gospel is life-changing. It is life-changing when believers do their part. No doubt about it that it was life-changing for the deaf-mute. The man who had never heard before, never spoke, we cannot imagine, those of us who have had that ability, we cannot imagine what that must have been like for that individual or his family or his friends. And by the way, it's his friends who brought. They besought Jesus. It reminds you of that other story about friends wanting to see their, their, their buddy get helped. Remember? Which one I'm referring to? That they even did what with the roof? They broke it up. They lowered them. How intense they were. The friends are excited. The friends are the ones that he's charging. Be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. We understand that the life change happened to that man. It had to be amazing and astonishing to them all that their friend who had never spoken or their son or their brother or their uncle who had never spoken before who and all of a sudden he's speaking with clarity and, he's, and it had to be a thrill. But what is even more impacting is you consider, why did these people bring, bring this man to Jesus? They're in Decapolis. What did they know about Jesus? Can I tell you that Jesus visited them just a few months before this? Can we go back in the story and go back to Mark chapter 5 and recall that in Mark chapter 5, if you go back to that story, Jesus was in Decapolis and he was ministering one other time before. It's in the region of, of um, Decapolis that we find Gadarenes or Gadarees. Anybody remember what story I'm referring to now? It's the demoniac. The demoniac was in that region. 
And now, and several months before when Jesus came, what was the response of the people in this area when Jesus healed the maniac of Gadara? Did they want Jesus to stay? No, they wanted him to leave, to get out of here. But there was one man who said, I want to go with you, Jesus. I want to be with you. Do you remember who it was? It was the maniac, the one who was healed. Let me go with you. He begged Jesus. And Jesus told him in Mark chapter 5, he says in verse 19, Go home to your what? Go to your friends. Tell them how great things the Lord hath done for you and hath had compassion on you. Months later, Jesus shows up in Decapolis. And what do they do this time? They bring somebody to him. Why? How come they did that? What impacted them? We don't have a direct statement. We have an indirect result. And we're going to, I don't think we're stretching the truth by saying the witness of the former demoniac had an impact when he told how great Jesus was. In fact, notice the statement Jesus said, go tell them what great things I has done. Do, did you remember the statement they make about Jesus in Mark chapter 7? He hath done all things perfect. The word that is used there, he is doing everything perfect, upright. They're talking about this great Jesus, how he is a sinless one, how he's a perfect one, how he's doing life-changing results. When we do what's right and we present Christ truly, and as we make that presentation, can it have life-changing results in people that we know who are spiritually deaf and dumb? Yeah. That's why let's end up this way, with this statement. The gospel must be given out. The gospel must be given out. It must be shared. It must not be kept. It is impacting. It is life-changing. It is sustaining for all eternity. We ought not to keep the gospel to ourselves. Now, right here, right now, okay, most everyone in this room says, I've already accepted that gospel message. I believe it. But how can we help right here, right now, how can we help getting the gospel out? Well, there's one thing we can do in these next few minutes that helps the gospel get out. Pray. Pray.